Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome to the inaugural podcast of the study group on music, childhood, and youth of the American Musicological Society. I'm Susan Boynton, and with Ryan Bunch, I co-chair the study group. Our first podcast features a conversation between Adeline Mueller and Roman Koch about Adeline's new book, Mozart and the Mediation of Childhood, published in July by the University of Chicago Press. Adeline Mueller is assistant professor of music at Mount Holyoke College. Roman Koch is associate professor of music in the Schulich School of Music at McGill University. Thank you very much to Adeline and Roman for being with us today. We hope you enjoy the interview. being with us today. My name is Roman Koch and I teach at McGill University in Montreal. With me is Adeline Miller of Mount Holyoke College and Adeline's book, Mozart and the Mediation of Childhood, has just been published by the University of Chicago Press. Congratulations, Adeline. What a wonderful addition to the growing scholarly literature on childhood and music. Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and your background to get us started? Sure. Well, thank you so much, Roman, and also to the AMS study group on childhood and youth. It's a pleasure to be a part of this series uh, and just to, to watch the development of this new discipline within musicology of music and childhood. Uh, uh, you and Susan Boynton are such pioneers in this field, so it's really a, a pleasure to be in conversation with you today. So a little bit about myself. I, I first came to music through dance, actually. I started out as a, as a dancer, and so I've always been particularly drawn to music for the stage, um, I participated in high school and college in a lot of musical theater and did some conducting and music directing for musical theater. And uh, my main instrument growing up was flute, but I always like to say that when it came to preparing for my senior recital, I found that I was having more fun actually researching and writing the program notes for the recital than sitting in the practice room, which should have been my first indication that maybe I belonged in the humanities. Uh, so I eventually found musicology and, um, and made my way to grad school. And I'd always been interested in um, German music and uh, particularly theatrical, vocal, 
uh, and dance music and film, music for film. And I kept getting sort of pulled back in time. So I started out working on the mid 20th century German avant-garde. Then I got pulled back into uh, Wagner opera and looking at choruses and then into German romantic opera and finally uh, sort of slowed down at Mozart. <laughs> so that's where I found myself now, but I definitely still consider myself a generalist. And that's one of the things I love about teaching at a small liberal arts college like Mount Holyoke is I'm able to teach courses in a number of different subjects and really explore a range of interests from race in the American musical to a course that I co-teach with a psychology professor on um, the cognition and perception of art and music. So that's a little bit about myself. That's a great answer. And, you know, I was just thinking about the interdisciplinary aspects of your book and how well mm. those mesh with, you know, what you've just said. And so what inspired your idea for the book? And I guess this question will take you back to your very rich background. And what influenced your decision to use the theoretical framework of mediation? I guess um, this is most fascinating. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I sometimes like to say that all scholarship is autobiography, whether we <laughs> maybe admit it or not, or to whatever degree. And in my case, this book was motivated by something that was going on in my life. I was about to become a mother. And uh, my approach to dealing with new and unfamiliar life events is to go into research mode. So I found myself drawn to looking at traditions of childhood and the childlike in German Singspiel and Lieder. And I found as I was doing that research for my doctoral thesis that Mozart kept coming up. Um, he was sort of always in the background, always contributing a lead here and there, an art song, or seemed to be referenced in a source. Uh, and so I, I decided I wanted to kind of flip the project after my thesis and really investigate, you know, what was his role in this reevaluation of childhood in, in his time and also in the decades after his death. And one of the things that interested me the most is to discover that while we're all really familiar with the idea of Mozart as a child prodigy, uh, that's something that virtually everybody knows, even if you have no background in music. It's part of the sort of pop culture image of Mozart. Uh, it's part of his brand, if you will. Um, a lot of scholars hadn't really interrogated or historicized or contextualized that. So there's all this rich information about his emergence as not just a child prodigy performer, but a composer and what an impact that had. But it had always been presented in a kind of biographical context. So, he, you know, in collections of uh, Mozart documentary sources, there's, you know, quote after quote, there's poems written in his honor, there's reviews of his, his sonatas. Um, there's mentions of him as, you know, the sort of paradigmatic child prodigy, but I really felt that no one had ever actually asked what that meant and what kind of significance he had on the lives of children and the understanding of childhood in and beyond his lifetime. And the, the story that really made this hit home for me was a story that's in the 
Mozart documentary sources, it's quite familiar, which is the fact that Mozart was cited as a piece of kind of evidence in these appeals all the way to Maria Theresa for a couple of forced baptism cases. So this was a phenomenon in the 18th century where Jewish babies and young children were often baptized against their will. If someone was taking care of them, if they were in prison or if they were uh, very ill and appeared to be at death's door. And these forced conversions were often appealed by members of the, the child's family. And there was a couple of cases that went all the way to Maria Theresa, where Mozart was cited as sort of evidence in this case, as the, um, as the imperial chancery was deciding whether or not a child as young as seven or eight or nine could be old enough to supposedly choose Catholicism over Judaism, especially if it was in opposition to his family's wishes. And I just found this such a striking anecdote, um, the idea that Mozart could be presented as a sort of paradigm for children's ability, not just to have musical talent or even creative talent, but to also have some kind of moral or religious autonomy or judgment or level of maturity. It just seemed like it was one of those stories that sort of hiding in plain sight, as it were. Um, and so I wanted to, to really dig into the context for that and other impacts that Mozart had on the history of childhood, far beyond the history of even music in and around the Habsburg lands in the late 18th century. And the way that mediation comes into that is that, you know, a, a person like Mozart, a, a child who's, you know, not a, uh, not a religious figure, not a, a, a monarch of any kind, not an aristocrat. For someone like him to have such an impact really had to do with the rise of print, right? So the, the fact that an image of him, a likeness of him, his sister and his father in performance could be traded and sold all across Europe during his tour and even used as a ticket for, uh, uh, you know, to, to allow someone to gain admittance to an audience with him and his sister on the tour, or the fact that he could complain about it. 10 years later in a letter home saying uh, there's this quote where he's, he's writing home 10 years later from France saying these stupid Frenchmen think I'm still seven. And he doesn't say it's because of the, the image, but this image had a permanence that uh, if he was just a, a performer having been written about at the time, it wouldn't have had the same weight, the same monumentality and the same permanence as it did. And also when it comes to the case of the baptism cases, what made him be cited as evidence in that uh, in that court case was not the fact that he was a performer, but the fact that he was a composer. The chancellery actually mentions the fact that He's so experienced in music as even to compose. So the fact that he was publishing music as a boy, uh, that's really what helped transform this idea about what children were capable of, what they were capable of intellectually and even uh, morally. So that's why I got really interested in this idea of tracing the impact of print culture on 
his own role in this wider history of childhood. And that's where that idea of mediation comes into place. Also, just the fact that mediation is a, a given within music and all the performing arts. So there's still a sense there's still an aspect in which even if an encounter between a parent and a child might be so to speak, scripted by something, a printed text or a printed score. There's still uh, that messy mediation of performance that lends a certain unpredictability to that encounter. So that was also something I wanted to trace. Right. And it's so, there are so many aspects of your answer that have me itching to ask more questions about, you know, the perils between child celebrities today and the use of social media, which is, would be the, the, a similar sort of domain as print would have taken the domain of print back then, um, the way you present it. And then the idea of him as an eternal child, because his music was considered even from by performers to be playful. And I think there may writers about music. Um, today, musicologists might still, you know, um, use that term to describe him. And then you think of um, his childlike qualities surviving to today because of films like Amadeus, you know, where he's shown as this out of control adolescent, basically, even though he's a full grown adult. And so, and then you think of music education, where people have claimed that Mozart is good for your brain, your child's math <laughs> scores will improve, you know, but he is associated with actual flesh and blood children for some reason. And there, there are, I guess, yeah. these historical reasons that you've brought to fore, you know, so beautifully in your book. In chapter five, I was intrigued by your analysis of Mozart's music in relation to family right, family configurations, and especially the gender dynamics that you described. And the dynamics seem to me to be pretty prescriptive in nature, and of course, tied to specific social classes. We're talking about feudal society, you know, this is before the revolution, and um, the differentiation of classes was very clear. Um, what are the implications of your research for today's performance of these pieces? We live, this is something that I struggle with with my students whenever I teach a period earlier than the French Revolution. You know, I hum and I ha, and they, and they really don't get a sense of the social classes um, that existed back then in Central Europe, because today we don't we deal with such a different I don't know society. Democracy is widespread in North America in particular. So, I would love first your thoughts on this, also to guide my students. Yeah, thanks. Um, I often teach this period as the seeds of the modern music industry, right? So we think about aspects of the modern popular music industry and the audiences, critics, record companies, systems of patronage, and we look for parallels in this time period. So even though the political situation is very different, we might find some interesting uh, and relevant parallels between some of the various networks and actors within those networks that help a musician find an audience uh, and find some fame, hopefully find some lasting fame. And uh, so that, that can be a, a fruitful way to, to draw that connection, make that connection a little bit more immediate for students today. It's often a lot easier with a text and with a story to, uh, to uncover some of those gender and class dynamics. It's a lot easier to talk about gender and class in Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro, for instance, than in 
a sort of random piano sonata uh, or string quartet. So I struggled with that a bit, but knowing that these pieces were written for specific parents and children to play together really encouraged me to look for those family dynamics in the music because Mozart often wrote to order, right? He loved to write to order. He loved to write with specific performers in mind. And he would often, you know, sort of write portraits of the people that he uh, composed for um, and, you know, composed to their, not only their particular technical strengths, but also their personalities. So I thought, well, he had to have, you know, at least known a little bit about uh, about these people that had commissioned him to write these, uh, especially the two concertos. And so how does that play out in the music? Uh, knowing what we know about what Mozart knew about the way that childhood had been represented and constructed in other media that he was very much aware of, you know, the poems and song collections and uh, periodicals that were exploding in the in print culture for uh, for children and families to share together. So I started to think of these concertos as, you know, little dramas, the way that um, people like Edward Clorman and Simon Keefe talk about the concertos as having these uh, sort of dramatic aspects to them. I, I was looking for that in these in these two concertos. So I found it really fascinating. And um, in terms of your question about how does that affect how or what are the implications for performers today? I mean, of course, my first instinct to answer that question is I love to see siblings and family members perform these concertos, right? So we have examples of the Lebec sisters who are a piano duo playing the Mozart concerto for three keyboards. And, uh, and maybe we can listen to an excerpt from one of the movements of that concerto where they perform a triple cadenza with a huge amount of rubato. And I, I realized I didn't write much about the cadenza for these concertos in the chapter, but it's really fascinating to think about the level of coordination that had to take place for a double, or in this case, triple cadenza between three different instruments, um, especially three keyboards where you can you know, barely see each other over the, the lid of the thing. Um, and to, to hear the Lebec sisters who've been playing together for decades, just have this amazing level of rubato where there's sort of one mind in two bodies, I think is just so expressive of the family dynamics of that concerto. And of course, there are other families of accomplished musicians. I know there's, uh, uh, I think, a Dutch uh, pair of brothers, the, the Jussen brothers, who have also recorded that concerto. I'd love to hear the members of the Connie Mason family perform it. Um, uh, they're the, the family of talented musicians in Britain. So, yeah, I, I think thinking about the, the original 
dedicatees, the original performers of a concerto like 242 or like 299 can really help any musician, whether or not they're related to their their, uh, fellow soloists, kind of get a grip on what sort of script this uh, this concerto might be for an encounter between family members and how you might draw out some of the poignancy in a particular moment, or maybe even a bit of ri- playful rivalry in another moment. This is really chamber music and that kind of ensemble thinking and playing together knits the community in a different way. Um, and it also it at the same time constricts some of the communication. So it's a wonderful interplay, I think, of discipline and um, coordination, discipline to coordination, perhaps you could say that, you know, and there's enough room for you to express yourself for that kind of agency that we are very much concerned about these days. So, Mm. yeah, I I think it's, it's a, I mean, in, a, in one word, it would be fun, you know, if I was to say <laughs> my undergrad, you know, of fun to play this together and to figure out your own voice within this multiplicity of different possibilities, right? Yeah, and you're absolutely right that it, it's a kind of, uh, I think I say this in the book, that it's a sort of nesting of the domestic within the public. So so to have a, a chamber group, like you say, of, of soloists who are also family members performing, but they're performing with an orchestra behind them and an audience in front of them. It's like they're sort of staging the family um, in this kind of quasi-public, quasi-private space. So that that's a really interesting kind of tension. Yes, it is. And it brings to mind again that old divide between the public and the private and how pieces like this straggle those two spheres. And actually, you know, it is semi-private, but it's also semi-public. And for Mm -hmm. some reason, it's all right to have that family dynamic, private though it is, right out there, you know, in public display. But of course, the the venues in the 18th century were much smaller than what we have Mm -hmm. today. So there are connotations, you know, about what we are what we're willing to make public as well, in a way, mm. the back sisters, you know, basically mm-hmm. their family connection is part of their brand, as you say. So um, mm. Mozart's music on the theme of childhood might also play into these modern day families of musicians. You're thinking about the 18th century and up to the, I think, early 19th century, most musicians came from musicians' families, right? Musical families. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. This is before the, the era of conservatory training. And so if you didn't come from a musical family, like the composer, I, I study a lot, Robert Schumann, mm-hmm. then you were at a, a, at a considerable disadvantage in terms of the networking and the social groups. You had to make those um, you had to take those initiatives to go out there and, you know, align yourself with different communities. I noticed that Mozart was widely acknowledged as a child genius, even back then, and a puer doctus. Um, but he was also held up as a model for other and much more ordinary children. And surely he was not really a realistic role model for them. Um, could you discuss this seeming paradox? or why it may not have been a contradiction in Mozart's day? And did Mozart himself ever object to the use of his image in ways that exerted pressure on his peers? So yeah, absolutely. This, this idea of him being a child genius and even described as a puer doctus or sort of boy scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was often 
the early reception of him precisely because he was print, you know, composing and printing music as a child that took him sort of out of the realm of, of just a child virtuoso and put him in the company of child scholars, you know, young precocious intellectuals who published, you know, Latin works or translations or mathematical treatises uh, before they turned, you know, 15. There were quite a few of these in the German-speaking lands to whom he was compared in the in the early years, in the 1760s and 70s. So yeah, you're absolutely right that that's not a realistic role model for, for everyone. Um, but you know, this was this was the Enlightenment, right? Where the the idea was that children and by extension people society <laughs> um were perfectible uh there was this great optimism that if you could simply raise a child the right way that they would grow up to be uh they would at least grow up to be and maybe they would even you know be in their childhood uh incredibly adept and talented and important so, so he's really caught up in that whole mythology of perfectibility that happens in the Enlightenment. And so I talk a little bit about, you know, Rousseau and the influence of Rousseau's childbearing treatise, Emile, or on education, where actually in a, a subsequent edition of, of Emile, Mozart himself is cited in a footnote. But uh, there's a scholar named Julia Duthwaite who's talked about how there were a number of families in the decades after Rousseau who tried to raise their children according to that treatise, literally following it as though it were a sort of teacher's manual and the sort of horrible things that happened when they tried to take it literally. So I feel like Mozart became a kind of Emile in that he was maybe not a realistic role model, but one to whom a lot of, especially uh, dynastic families of musicians or would-be parents of the next Mozart aspired to. So there was this you know, whole rash of children who were paraded around Europe in the 1780s and 90s in an effort to make them into the next Mozart and the next Mozart. So like you say, it was a sort of a paradox, but we don't have a lot of information, at least that I could track down, about you know, how he felt about being such a sort of poster boy, if you will, for uh, for enlightenment, perfectibility, for the nurturing of talent. And most of a lot of that mythography actually really gets going after his death. Um, so again, if he had lived to uh, a, full, a fuller life, lived into his 60s or 70s, we might know more. But the mythography of him really took off um, partly because of his early death. And so that really colors our sort of impressions of, you know, whether he may or may not have been, uh, have accepted or maybe begrudgingly accepted the roles to which he had been put. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting because I also, you know, it, your answer made me think about, you know, and you, you actually mentioned it maybe for the first time in this interview, the word parents and also, <laughs> uh, right? And thinking about mediations of childhood and children, um, parental interventions, I would imagine, play 
played a huge role and still play a huge role. And that idea of perfectibility might have also been part of, you know, the narrative under which Mozart lived and maybe presented to him by his father. I don't know. Mm. Um, want to address a little bit, you know, Leop- Leopold's relationship with his son, his genius son. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it if it hadn't have been for Leopold and his career uh, and his, you know, his real savvy about the music industry uh, at his time in his time, you know, that trip to the tour around Europe with Mozart and Nannerl would never have been even the success that it was. Um, as it was, they barely made it home alive. Uh, it was incredibly treacherous to embark on a three-year tour of Europe like that um, with things like smallpox raging. So yeah, a lot of it had to do with Leopold's savvy with his connections that he already had, as you said, um, with Mozart and Nannerl being part of this dynastic family and his expertise in sort of adjusting the branding to each new city and country that they that they went into. And you can see that that pressure and that know-how coming through in all of the advice that Leopold continues to give Mozart throughout his, his teens and 20s as he's starting to kind of strike out on his own. So yeah, absolutely. The, the parent-child dynamics in that family are, are fascinating. And Ruth Hallowell was a big influence for me in thinking through that. Her, her sort of family biography of the Mozarts, Four Lives in a Social Context, was really, really helpful for laying the foundation for some of that work. Right. And um, I was reading on another topic um, and the similarities between that topic and what you are just talking about, um, this idea of perfectibility of children and that parents play a leading role in ensuring that children reach their full potential. It's still very much alive today in the Chinese community. And, you know, it, it, it's, it comes from Confucian ideals about the malleability of human nature and, and ability and how Chinese parents also put a lot of pressure on their children to do well academically. And then when you talked about Leopold and um, Wolfgang, I thought of Lang Lang and his father. We know this piano virtuoso um, in the hands of his father, you know, his father really molded him. Um, and Yuja Wang apparently was also represented by her father for a very long time. And before she had an, an artistic agency take over that role. And so, you know, th- th- there is still, um, it, it's just, you just made me think that, you know, the narrative lives on and it lives on in um, another community altogether, you could say that, but it's still centered around Western art music and, you know, the the results of that, these genius um, pianists. Anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. um, It also shows up in the field of professional athletics too. You see a lot of um, of, uh, precocious athletes who are managed or coached by their parents. So yeah, absolutely. Your book is an excellent example of how music historians can embrace inclusivity by exploring less research topics such as children and childhood. Do you have suggestions as to how we can better integrate music for and about children into our conversations in music history? There's two answers I would give to this question. First of all, children are you know, as all of us who work in childhood studies are familiar with, you know, childhood is a really unusual category of what we would call the marginalized, 
right? So the children as a group bear some resemblances to other marginalized identities, but childhood is universal, right? We're all, we are all, we all start as children. It's also temporary. Ideally, we all grow out of childhood. Um, and the power differential between children and adults has a certain, you know, can be justified on, on certain sort of, you know, legal or biological grounds. So it's a really strange category of marginalization, but one that I think bears some interesting uh, resemblances to other marginalized identities and also benefit studies of our other marginalized groups. So that's sort of my first answer to the question is I, I think that, you know, looking at children and how they're sort of constructed and also how they take part in their own construction, uh, how they interact with one another, how they interact with the adults around them, the agency that they have. These are all, you know, terms and concepts that we're familiar with from critical race studies, from gender and sexuality studies. And I think there's a lot that we can gain from uh, within, you know, childhood studies, especially within the performing arts from, from looking to those other disciplines. And then a second answer to the question, uh, one that, you know, I find really fascinating is that music for children and, and other cultural products for children are often where ideology puts its cards on the table. <laughs> so, um, you know, as, as you know, with, with, you know, German nationalism in, in Schumann and, um, and there's countless other examples. And Nisha Timberlake writes about this in uh, her work on um, pedagogy in the GDR that, you know, music for childhood and music for children rather is often where adults sort of, they show what they really have planned for society. So it can often be a kind of political truth serum, as it were. <laughs> so that's what I find really interesting about looking into music and childhood. This just this just happened the other day where um, I was I'm I'm writing about uh, the figure of Monostatos and um, Moors and uh, constructions of blackness and Africans in Dietz Alberflöte, in, in Mozart's Dietz Alberflöte, and in other German Singspiel of the time. And I went to a children's geography book to see, okay, what were they telling their children Moors were? What were they, where were they saying they were from? What sort of uh, images uh, and illustrations accompanied this children's geography book that can give us some insight into the constructions of blackness and Africanness in late 18th century German sources. So I find that, you know, adult discourse can sometimes efface its own ideological ends, but when adults are planning to teach, planning to guide children into becoming the next generation of adults, they often uh, tip their hand, so to speak. And so I find that really fascinating. And that's where I think an attention to children and childhood in any musical culture can be really illuminating. 
And, you know, it can be frighteningly transparent what adults want out of children, right? I was reading Ruth Bottingheimer's articles on children's Bibles, and uh, mm. it's really hilarious because, of course, the Bible is full of contradictions and how adults were trying to present them to children. Um, it, that, that is, I mean, that is work that should be better known, but it brings to the fore all the anxieties that adults have about their own society, about their sexuality, about um, what children should understand of this huge kingdom above earth that has so much power. And, you know, how do you present abstract and profound ideas like that to, you know, this, these are 15th, I think the, the Bibles she covered were from the 16th century through the early 19th century. And mm. some authors really tripped up, I, I would say, in terms of sort of um, trying to reconcile their own fears with, you know, the, this huge document that is so important to Western civilization. Anyway. Right. It's like, how do you, how do you sort of inculcate your successor generation into the the values and and even dogmas uh, that you hold dear. Um, so yeah, it gets into all these questions of of agency, of consent. You know, I found so often when I was trying to sort of figure out what I meant by a child versus an adolescent uh, versus an adult. There's so many different legal markers for for all of those categories from the age of consent, the age of minimum criminal responsibility, the age of adult criminal responsibility. You know, at what point does a child have uh, autonomy over their own body? At what point do they, can they choose their religion? At what point can they get married without their parents' consent? At what point can they own property? Well, that depends on if you're a man or a woman. You know, there's so many different uh, ways in which childhood is such a slippery category. And I think, um, uh, I, th I think that's fascinating. It's maddening, but it's also fascinating. It's been great to hear about your work and, you know, your thoughts about your work. And um, we hope to see more of these conversations in the future. And I wish you all the best. And thank you for helping me with my ideas for my own classes as well. I think I will be very happy to introduce your book in my classes. So thank you so much, Roman. And it's been an honor to be in conversation with you as well. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. SHCY.org.